Chapter 2 Underground Kingships What comes to your mind when you think about the fungi kingdom? Delicious mushrooms and home-cooked meal? Perhaps the surprisingly rapidness in which some mushrooms appear and disappear in our gardens without warning? You might even associate fungi with the yeast that produce bread and beer. Or drugs. If you're thinking of penicillin and all the antibiotics were made through partnerships with fungal beans. Or magical mushrooms very popular in Wonderland. These are good images for the fungi. If you're a half-empty glass person, you're probably thinking about the infectious disease caused by them. Rotten food. A mold that might appear in a wall that should not have been filled with humidity. Fungi are much more present in our everyday lives than we usually assume. If you take a big breath right now, the air you breathe in, it's very likely to contain at least one type of fungal spores. Not to mention the fungi that live naturally in the human body. Even if you have no disease caused by them at all. Fungi are everywhere and even so, we can easily miss them if we're not paying attention. Imagine that you are outside in the woods. Where would you look for fungal beans of any kind? Trunks? Mushrooms in the soil surface? I invite you to think differently about this. Instead of exploring the surface above the ground, or even in the air, think about the life under the surface, in the soil. Think about the world under our feet that we usually take for granted. If you understand the many scales in which life manifests itself, then the soil is no longer a brown, passive white mass, and it becomes a vivid and complex world full of activity and diversity. Sometimes we have to travel through scales of time and space that are different from ours to go beyond our anthropocentric world veils. On this matter, I recommend that everyone stop for a moment and Google about the awesome science illustrator Katie Scott and her portrait of the soil microbiota. She shows us a vivid and colorful underground world and helps us to see how the soil is much more a multi-species permanent gathering than a block of wet dirt. It is in this busy and colorful underground world that fungi and plants make one complex cooperation which benefits them both mutually but also affects the ecologies of many other soil beings like bacteria, worms and even humans. If you make a strong claim that humans are part of the soil like the feminist authoress Maria Puig de la Bella Casa, then it's easier to understand why the human interest in Matsutake is a story that relates us with the soil. I promise you that we will dig the soil a little deeper in a future episode. For now, let's back to mushrooms. Unlike one might think, mushrooms represent just a fraction of some fungi's life cycle. The larger part of the life of a fungus that grows mushrooms happens in the form of mats or living networks called mycelium 
or as I prefer its plural form, mycelia. Not all fungi produce mushrooms, so generally, what is counted as a mushroom is the fleshy, spore-bearing fruiting body of a fungus. What I describe next is a very brief overview of the most common form of life cycle for a mushroom, and believe me, there are plenty. There are currently seven divisions among the fungi kingdom, but the mushrooms are all included in two of them, generally described as higher fungi. That being said, the majority of mushrooms belong in one of these divisions called Basidiomycota. But then again, not all Basidiomycete are mushrooms. Don't worry about this bunch of flatty names. What matters for us here is that you know the prefix of the word, which is Basidio. This name comes from the microscopic structures called Basidia, which are located inside the caps of the mushrooms. If you look under the cap of a mature mushroom, you will most likely find radial lines connecting the stem and the edges of the cap. Together, they form a circle of lines. Those lines are the mushroom's gills. Between those lines, inside the cap, there is the basidia. Structures, they are like a bag. They produce and hold spores and then release them through the gills to the world. Once the spores are liberated from the caps, they count on many partners to continue the journey. Winds, rain, other forms of water, insects and other animals, and even humans help to spread spores around. Unlike humans though, spores can have tens of different sexes. One single mushroom can spread millions of spores, but only a small fraction of them will give life to new mycelial colonies. Under certain conditions, spores become hyphae and the colonies of hyphae are the ones called mycelia. Hyphae are long, branching filamental structures. It is from mycelial networks that mycorrhizae and new mushrooms sprout. Mushrooms with their own basidia, which produce spores that are spread around through the gills and make the cycle alive again and on and on. As I said before, an above-ground mushroom is just a fraction of this fungi's life cycle. They might surprise us appearing and disappearing very quickly, but while they might stay visible for no longer than a few days, underground mycelia can live up to thousands of years. Mycelia are amazing biotic beings, among many things, because they work like a bridge between life and death in the soils. If you're down for a more disturbed image, they are like a reverse the stomach, because their digestion is made outside their bodies. I see them as a sort of collective existence, like a living fractal, able to connect multiple forms of life in the soil. They are frequently called the wood wide web. Although the name sounds like a silly pun, there is actually an important reason behind it. It has been well demonstrated that, besides being able to break minerals from rocks and providing water and nutrients for the trees, Mycelia make possible an underground communication between them. For instance, 
If a tree is under attack by a pest, a predator of some kind or even fire, they can send signals for the other trees connected to the underground networks so they can use defense mechanisms to protect themselves. Sometimes they are used as a kind of subway for bacteria as well. The mycologist Paul Stamets compares the mycelial networks to Gaia from Lovelock and Margulis' theory and calls them the Internet of Nature. This description of mycelia networks I just made are very underwhelming in face of what mycelia can do. But that's probably enough for our purpose here. I'll be sharing some content about them on Twitter at Yamakiyoti in case you want to see a little more. I think it is easy to understand why the roots of a tree are important for its survival. It just makes sense. They get the nutrients in the soil that the tree needs above the ground. On the other hand, my cedar amazed me because you cannot figure them out so easily. It amazes me their ability to connect the living and non-living things in the soil, in a way they are good companions when we are thinking about the ants and the worlds. The connection of what is dead and what is alive, even the very question of what does it mean being alive and being dead. It's probably a central theme in most of the end-of-the-world stories. More often than not, the reconstruction of damaged soils depends heavily on mycelial mats. They are the reason why pines can grow on poor soils, which takes us back to our mushroom star. Matsutake are a kind of mycorrhizal mushroom that spawn naturally in many different parts of the northern hemisphere. And here we go again with the Latin terms. Classifying them as mycorrhizal means that they build strong symbiotic connections with some kinds of coniferous trees. Generally, pines are the most common partners. If you remember well, Matsutake translates as pine mushrooms. Mycorrhizae, as most words that starts with MYC, refer to fungi somehow. These are botanical structures made of a symbiotic connection between the mycelia of fungi and the roots of plants. While the tree and the fungus in this scenario are relating most of the time mutualistically, the mycorrhizae are a third thing, one that is fungus and plant at once, like a river between two nations that does not belong completely to any of them. Now that we know that mycorrhizae are a symbiont, let's define a symbiotic relation as a relation that describes a long-term interaction between two different biological organisms. In other words, there are the roots, the mycelia, and a third thing connecting the other two. On the other hand, when we are thinking about the mushroom and the tree, like Matsutake and pines, Saying they relate mutualistically means they both depend on one another for living and growing. Understanding the basic parts of the biological connection between pines and Matsutake is a necessary step in order to understand why they are such a particular case of symbiosis and mutualism. Pines and Matsutake make a great partnership, one that is touched by human intervention. They have in common the fact that both can live well in extreme environments, but only when they're together. 
we could go as far as suggesting that it may be a case of co-evolution. It's worth saying that this is not an exclusive relationship. Matsutake relate in a similar way with other trees, the same way pines relate with many other kinds of mushrooms and other fungi as well. Even so, when it comes to understanding the pine mushroom behavior, it becomes absolutely necessary to understand the importance of this particular relation. Pines like cold high places, places that are almost deserts, rocks and sand. They can be aggressive invaders if they have access to light, but in the shadows of broadleaf trees they become weak. Page 40 Contrast the Matsutake forest. Unlike sugarcane clones, Matsutake make it evident that they cannot live without transformative relations with other species. Matsutake mushrooms are the fruiting bodies of an underground fungus associated with certain forest trees. The fungus gets its carbohydrates from mutualistic relations with the roots of its host trees, for whom it also forages. Matsutake make it possible for host trees to live in poor soils without fertile humus. In turn, they are nourished by the trees. This transformative mutualism has made it impossible for humans to cultivate Matsutake. Japanese research institutions have thrown millions of yen into making Matsutake cultivation possible, but so far without success. Matsutake resists the conditions of the plantation. They require the dynamic multi-species diversity of the forest, with its contaminating relationality. Pines depend on mycorrhizae and fungal mycelium. The mycelium matter's presence of soil has even a particular name in Japanese, which is shiro. Shiro translates as castle or white, but is a word also used for describing mycelium mats. In other words, no shiro, no pines. The shiro have the ability of breaking nutrients from rocks, sand and poor soils and are directly connected to the mycorrhizae, which provides the connection with the roots of the tree. Without fungi, pines cannot grow in extreme environments such as very cold places or soils that suffer from the lack of water and other nutrients. But the opposite is also true. Fungi needs sugars that only become available through the partnership with the trees. Even if they are not exclusive partners, it is very rare to find Matsutake where there are no pines. And then a complex assemblage of multi-species starts to form, including much more than just the two of them. If no shiro means no pines, something similar happens without human disturbance. This is where the plot thickens. Pines and Matsutake depend on ruined places and can transform them in many ways. But without human disturbance, they cannot succeed. Matsutake forests are human disturbed places. In Japan forests, for instance, a long time ago, the habit of chopping down broadleaf trees for charcoal and fire 
guaranteed that pines could master the spaces that became pine forests. They were no good for firewood, as other trees available around, in part because some species of pines burn out too fast. The mushrooms were abundant by the beginning of the 20th century, so much that the word Matsutake would be used for mushrooms of any kind. After the Second World War, a combination of factors made the Matsutake become scarcer each day. First, the peasant woodlands were being cut down for timber plantations, destroyed by suburban development or abandoned by peasants moving to the larger cities. Then, the use of fossil fuels was becoming more common and people stopped disturbing the forest in search of raw material for fire. These new habits changed the forests and that allowed broadleaf trees to grow bigger and older, making the access of red pines to the sunlight scarce. In the shadows, the weaker pines were successfully attacked by an invasive nematode. Then, the pines started to die younger and, soon enough, the Matsutake disappeared. In the case of the forests in Oregon, it was the other way around. The prohibition of fires together with the renation of the economic worth of the wood gave room for a particular kind of pine and, consequently, the Matsutake rose in the ruins of an old timber industry. I will tell the stories in detail in the fourth chapter of this episode. What matters now is knowing that disturbance is a complicated thing. Even more because it is not a matter of the amount of disturbance, rather than its particular complexities and how the forest inhabitants relate to it. While the pines and Matsutake need human disturbance, it is not any disturbance, but particular changes in the ecologies of the forest. Often, Pines can compete for light with broadleaf trees, so one of the ways human disturbance might help them is by making the competing trees weaker. That can be intentional, like chopping down broadleaf trees, or completely unintentional, like selecting a certain type of pine by making fire exclusion a law. The human relation with accumulation has much to do with the disappearance of Matsutake in Japan and the unexpected abundance in Oregon. Pickers, hunters and researchers from all over the world have been working hard to find a way to cultivate them. Even so, Matsutake are punk mushrooms. So far, their anti-domestication politics have been very successful. So the first thing to learn about them is that if we're willing to find them for whatever reason it may be, we're better trying to understand rather than trying to control. Page 171 By colonizing disturbed landscapes, Matsutake and Pine make history together, and they show us how history-making extends beyond what humans do. At the same time, humans create a great deal of forest disturbance. Matsutake, pines, and humans together shape the trajectories of these landscapes.
Like the legend of the Matsutake after the bombing in Hiroshima in the beginning of the episode showed, it is not uncommon at all that fungi adapt and find their way to live and grow in places where no other living being seems to be capable of doing the same. If you want a more recent episode, you should research about the radiotrophic fungi covering the elder Chernobyl power plant. Recent researches are suggesting that perhaps those fungal colonies are using the pigment melanin to convert gamma radiation into chemical radiation for growth. Crazy, right? These stories show the power of encounters. Unexpected encounters generate new things. Unexpected encounters generate adaptation. They generate difference. In the next chapter, I'll talk about my personal encounter with Anna Singh's book and some of the counters the Singh had herself with the Matsutake in order to write the book. See you in the next chapter. And to them, may the spores be with you.